Well, good morning, Restore. I uh, haven't been outside since about 7 this morning, but the weather looks amazing. Okay, that's what I'm hearing. Cool. Well, uh, welcome. If you are just now joining us for the first time, uh, my name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here at Restore. Uh, and we are in the middle of a series where we are exploring uh, the foundation, if you will, or the, the tenets, uh, if you want to call it that, or the pillars, if you want to use that word, whatever word you want to use there, of the Christian faith. Why this is so important and why Nicole and I feel so strongly about this is one of, one of the beautiful things about Restore, one of the things that we've set out to create and foster uh, as a community, as a culture, is a church that brings a variety of different perspectives from, from Christianity, from Christendom, a variety of different traditions and cultural backgrounds coming together to worship Jesus. We believe this is what Christianity is. This is what Jesus is offering us. This is part of the good news of the gospel. One aspect of that that we don't often consider very regularly uh, is unity. Okay, so, so we've all probably heard a bunch of sermons preached on, on, on glorifying God, on, on being faithful, on trusting him and we don't see him, uh, on combating sin. All, right, all of those things are, are good and fine and like we should preach about those, but very rarely have we ever considered unity a Christian action. Something that God calls us to and calls us to fight for. But if you read your Bible, if you read your New Testament, right, uh, once, once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. Read the words of Paul, all of his letters. He starts off with, be unified with one another. Be of one mind and of one heart. When Jesus prays his priestly prayer in John 17, this is the prayer that he prays before he goes to the crucifixion. His final prayer that he offers to the Father the thing that he prays for, for you and for me, he prays for those who have not met him yet. That's you and me, people who did not meet him while he was alive. This is what he prays, that they may be one as you and I are one. His final prayer that he offers to the Father in the final moments of his life was that this community of people who are going to follow me and know me and worship me may be one. And so unity uh, isn't just something that we kind of do on the side. It is, I would argue, one of the primary actions of Christians. We are called to fight for it, to preserve it, to protect it, to cultivate it. This is, by the way, as you, so many of us matured in our own faith, we ended up feeling so ostracized from our own faith communities that we grew up or maybe the faith of our parents. Because Christian unity is undertaught and I think underdeveloped, particularly for those of us who are in the American church. It's very individualistic. But Christian unity focuses first and primarily on what it is that we have in common. Right, so whenever I, I talk about Christian unity, people are like, well, isn't that like what cults do, right? Like, isn't cults about, like, why we are all one, why we are so special? And yes, that's true, but the cult mentality towards unity is very different than the Christian mentality towards unity. Cult mentality towards unity is why we are more special than everyone else. 
more pure, more right, more faithful, more like why we are distinct from everybody else, right? And so they try to create unity or uniformity, but they do it by drawing a distinction as to why they are more right or more pure or more faithful than everyone else around them. Christian unity starts from a very different essence, starts from a very different place, and it starts with what do we have in common with one another? What are the things that we believe about Jesus that unite us regardless of what background that we come from, regardless of what space that we may have existed in before? How are we uh, alike? This is how Christian doctrine developed, by the way. This is why as, as so many of us uh, aged and sort of grew into our own experience of faith, we felt ostracized uh, or alienated from the faith communities that we were part of because we hadn't developed, they hadn't developed in us an actual sense of Christian unity. This will be the thing for those of you whose parents, as your children age and grow, and you start to notice differences in them. Those differences usually when it comes to faith start alarming people, right? That's that's what happens sometimes in families. Parents get alarmed when they start seeing differences. Children start getting frustrated when they start noticing differences. But what Christian unity does is it actually helps us navigate those differences without panicking, without immediately saying, well, this is heretical, or this isn't what God wants, or this isn't how you honor God. These aren't the decisions you make. Like, it allows us to actually create space without panicking, without ostracizing, or without creating enemies out of one another. It's the essence of how you're going to love each other in your small groups. It's the essence of how church works, is to learn to love each other by looking at what is in common. And this, as we move and navigate all the different situations in life, what it will do is it will allow us to have a center. So this is why we're doing this series uh, what we're looking at when we look at Christian unity, here's what it is. We're exploring something called the Nicene Creed. Uh, and I know m many of you may have never heard of that before. Um, this isn't going to be a history lesson or a seminary lecture, but the Nicene Creed was this document that was formulated by the church uh, around 300 years after the death of Christ. Uh, and it was the, it was the first time uh, and really actually the last time ever that the church, north and south, east and west, got together and said, okay, we're starting to notice as Christianity grows, both uh, in the east and in the west, uh, differences, big differences. And so they came together and said, what are the things that we're going to have in common with one another? How are we going to always recognize you are a faithful follower of Jesus like me? And so the Nicene Creed was developed. This creed was developed. It's not scripture, by the way. It doesn't have the same level of authority as scripture does. I want to preface that. Like it, it doesn't have, it's not inspired in the same kind of way that we say scripture is. Uh, but it was, the, it was a time when the church got together and said, these are the things as Christians we can believe and fight for and agree upon with one another, which means that we can create loving space for differences. It's the only church document in existence uh, that is universally accepted by both Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants to this day. It's the, only, it's the only document that you could get either groups, any of those groups of Christianity, which are widely different from one, one another in many different ways, uh, to actually agree, yeah, these are the things that uh, really unite or expand on the Christian faith. And so the, this, this particular passage that we're in, this, the portion of the creed that we're in this morning, uh, is about the end times. The apocalypse, 
And when I say those words, depending on what, where you grew up, the first thing that you might think of is left behind, right? Some of you are left, or maybe it's Kirk Cameron, I don't know. <laughs> Kirk Cameron or left behind, right? All right, the first thing that we kind of think of is judgment's coming, I better be ready. What's going to happen if I'm not? I'm left behind, right? Like that is, for most Christians in America, for better or worse, or whether he meant Tim LaHaye, the author, meant it or not, is like most people's theological understanding of the rapture, of the apocalypse, comes from these books, which is pseudo-theology. They're not theology. They're, it, and I'm, I'm, like I, I try never to say there's terrible theology. But those books were terrible. He's not even a theologian. Like, he just took Jewish apocalyptic literature and kind of threw all of his stuff in there and then made a book out of it. And then everybody's like, this is science. Like, this is how it's going to happen. So what we're going to do this morning uh, is I want to jump back a little bit from some of the anxiety when we think of apocalypse. Okay, some of the dread, some of the left behind. There is judgment coming, but Christians have long understood that judgment differently. We're not going to go into all of those aspects, but what I want to do this morning is step a little bit, as much as I can, ask us to step back a little bit from the cultural, maybe upbringings we've thought of, rapture and apocalypse, right? And we've seen enough, we're watching The Last of Us now, uh, but we've seen enough like zombie movies, end of the world movies, that we all kind of have this picture of like what it might or may not look like when Jesus returns, and most of it's been informed by HBO and Walking Dead, right? Like, and so... I do want us to step back a little bit, and we're going to look at what Scripture says, what Paul says about the end times, uh, but we're going to explore a little bit of this this morning, particularly what is, it, what is the apocalypse? Like, what, is, what does it mean when the Bible talks about apocalypse? Uh, some of those answers might surprise you. So this portion of the Nicene Creed uh, says this, it's speaking of Jesus, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, for these next few minutes as we explore, I don't know, a wildly difficult subject to understand, the apocalypse, your return, which we, can, we know is coming. Um, Father, for most of us, it fills us with a sense of dread or anxiety, um, Father, this morning, would you give us hope? That's what the apocalypse is. It's the moment at which we realize that we cannot do for ourselves what only you can do for us, and because you love us, you're going to do that thing. This is the certainty that you are offering us. Would you help us cling to that this morning? Father, we love you. We need you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so... Um, when the Bible talks about apocalypse, it's actually never referring distinctly to the end times. Okay, so I'm, this isn't going to be a sermon on Revelation, but I'm just going to say this quickly as, as it kind of help build us a little bit of a foundation. But even the book of Revelation itself, is, it's not a fortune-telling book. Somebody didn't sit down and be like, let me write down exactly what's going to happen so they know it's coming. Jesus himself says, I'm not even sure the hour. Like he says, the Son of Man does not know the hour that he will return. And so somehow from that, then we go, well, Revelation's going to show us exactly when and how he's going to return, right? And so people start getting very paranoid and start sparsing through all of it, trying to figure out, well, what is the beast? And what is that going to happen? And who's going to, right? Like, 
all of these questions are not unimportant questions. I don't want us to ask them, but I want us to ask them understanding apocalyptic literature, which is this. Your Bible is, apocalyptic literature is everywhere, and that's what I'm going to try to do this morning was help us see. Uh, it's not just in the book of Revelation. It's scattered all throughout your Old Testaments, uh, but the as when the Bible speaks of apocalypse, what it's speaking, even that word Greek means to, to be opened or to be revealed. For something to be shown or seen, not as the way we'd always understood it, but now because it's being shown to us, now being able to understand it or being able to see it more clearly. Okay, so the Bible will speak of the death of Jesus as an apocalypse. It's this intervention from God on, towards a helpless humanity who then is shown the light of God through Jesus. It's this apocalyptic adventure. Writers will use these words, by the way. Paul, when he refers to people becoming Christians, he refers to it as an apocalyptic event. This moment in which God opens up the, heart, the eyes of your heart and your soul to your need for him. It's this outside intervention from God and our state of helplessness. So, so like I said, it's very general. Right? It's not a sermon on Revelation. It's not where we're going. But what I want to do is set the tone. So when we start thinking of apocalyptic literature, I want us to start thinking in terms of, well, let me try to understand everything. Like, so when do the zombies come? And, right, like, let me, instead of understanding all of the ins and outs of exactly how it ends, start to understand the essence of what it's communicating, is that there's a hopeless humanity in need of a Savior. But because in John 3, 16... For God so loved the world, he will not abandon humanity. This is, this is how apocalyptic literature is set up in your Bible. Uh, so uh, what does is, what is, um, all of this mean? There's a big aspect of Christianity that, is already, that has not happened yet. There's a big space of Christianity that has already happened. Jesus has already come. He has already been crucified. He's already been raised from the dead. And he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. I believe that from the bottom of my heart. I trust me, I wouldn't be here this morning if I didn't. Okay, so, so there's a big part of Christianity that's already happened. Because Jesus has come, we can experience the goodness of God, the presence of God in our life. We can know the love of God. We can see who God has been revealed in Jesus. Okay. There's also a very big aspect of Christianity that has not happened yet. This is mainly the final return of Jesus. Okay, so I would argue that this part of Christianity is almost entirely underdeveloped in us. It's like how to live in this tension. How to live in this space of waiting for something that hasn't happened yet. And this is why, and I'm sure I'm guilty of this, uh, so much of evangelicals in America uh, likes to kind of manipulate emotions, and they, they offer, and I coach our worship people on, on this, on you avoiding this kind of language. Often they offer this language of like, God is here in his fullness. There's nothing holding him back now. There's nothing that he can't do. There's nothing that I can't experience about him. And while there is truth in all of that, there's also a very big piece of us that is waiting for the final revelation of God, the fullness of God to return. And so many of us are actually have underdeveloped this space of how to wait with hope. Okay, so what am I not saying this morning? I'm not saying that you cannot experience the fullness of God and his goodness through the person of Jesus. I wouldn't be up here and I wouldn't be talking to you guys right now if I didn't believe that. I do, however, believe that many of us have underdeveloped this space of I'm still waiting 
God is still coming. I'm still broken, and the world is still broken. Things are not as they should be. I'm not as I should be. And so what happens in this space is I think because it's underdeveloped in us, we often don't know how to exist in it, even though ironically, <coughs> excuse me, it is the space that we actually exist in as Christians. But learning to exist in this already happened and also not yet, still waiting, uh, things will begin to change for us. One, uh, you will feel less and less at home in the world around you, but you'll not also, you'll also have a sense that you're not entirely home just yet. There will be this tension of I don't really belong here, but also I know the place that I, I do truly belong isn't quite here just yet either. And so you'll not feel home here, but you'll long for home there. And so there'll be this kind of tension or longing that you'll exist with. Um, as you grow, right, so there's all these implications of learning to wait in the space. But as you grow as a Christian, as you grow more loving and more faithfully obedient to Jesus, here's, here's some part of the, that process that's difficult, is you actually really have nothing to compare it to. Because you're, you're growing. God's bringing you to some space, but you're not entirely sure what that will look like. And so for many of us, uh, we spend time like, am I, am I where I should be in my faith? Am I growing fast enough in my faith? Have I, have I arrived in my faith? I remember, um, I mean, I'm a pastor. People fight me on things I say all the time. But like, I remember as a student pastor, I was doing a devotion with our team. And this is probably one of the people, things that people had fought me the most on. Uh, was somebody in the team and suggested that like spiritual perfection was possible. If we just prayed hard enough, if we were obedient enough, if we were like whatever the list was for this person, right? I, I can achieve some kind of spiritual intimacy with God, which is close to perfection. And you can't. It's a, it's a myth, right? And so part of, part of what, what happens is when we don't learn to wait in this space with hope, as Paul wants his churches to do, and I'll show this, uh, we end up setting ourselves up to fail as Christians. We set ourselves with too high expectations that we'll feel frustrated and demoralized and discouraged by for never actually being able to reach. Part of the Christian growth journey is that God is taking you a space that you don't know. And he's going to define things for you. He's going to define success for you in ways that you don't understand just yet. And so you're learning to recognize that as you grow. Uh, but we also have to live with the reality, and this partly goes into why we're in unity. We also have to honestly live with the reality, and I know this feels weird to say this, hear this pastor say this from the stage, but I don't, like, there's, you have to live with the reality that you may be wrong about God. Like, you just do. Like, like, if I were to ask you right now, hey, what other Christian in your life do you agree with God, about God, 100% on everything? Like, I don't, I don't think any of you could raise your hand. Which means that either they're wrong, or you're wrong, or you're both wrong. Like, and so, um, when I say all of this, my goal here isn't to say, well, so it doesn't matter. Like, let's just be people that are super cynical and doubt all the time, and that's not what I want to do. But what I want to do is destigmatize the doubt, okay? The, the same way that like, I speak often of, of mental health and even some of my own struggles with mental health, I want to destigmatize it. That's not because I want us to be mentally unhealthy, right? Right, like with my own recovery from obsessive compulsive disorder, I don't want to just live in that. Like, I want to recover. I want to have health. I want to have balance. I want to have connection with people, 
right? So the, the goal isn't like, so let's just be a people that are like super doubt-filled all the time and super cynical and just walking like, I don't know, you might be wrong, I might be wrong, why are we even here? That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I want to do is destigmatize it. So that when you're in a space of, I don't know, or my viewpoint's changing, or God's doing something and I don't understand what it is, or I'm struggling more than I feel like I should, I don't immediately am like immersed in a sense of shame of, oh my man, I've got it all wrong, I can't figure it out. No, you're, you're in a space of waiting. And some of that struggle and some of that disillusionment and that frustration and that angst that you feel is part of the space of waiting. And so there's a way for us to do this, and Paul's going to walk us through that this morning. Um, let me read 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28 for us, where Paul will talk to his church about much of what we're saying this morning. He says this, starting in verse 20. But Christ has indeed <laughs> been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as an for as in an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy... Listen to this. This is the final enemy of God. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Okay, so... Like, man, that was a lot. Um, hang on, we'll walk, I'm going to walk us through it a little bit here. Um, whenever, we, whenever, I, whenever we tackle Paul in some of these, like, harder subjects, first thing I want to say is Paul often says the same thing. He just says it differently over and over again. Uh, so sometimes it looks like, you're like, oh, dang, there's, like, eight things I got to know there. There's really one or two things that he's kind of driving at. He's just hitting it from different angles. So take a deep breath. Um, let me walk us through what he's doing here. Um, but the first thing he's wanting to do is reassure the Corinthians here. Uh, so he's speaking to a church that is really struggling to understand the essence of their Christian life. He's speaking to a church, a group of people who have, uh, like the church has become so uh, misguided in some ways. They have members of the church stealing from other members of the church and kind of like doing it openly and then like bragging about it without consequence. It's a little bit like if I'm like, hey, have you met so-and-so? He's our best snatcher like every Sunday I don't know how he gets away with it like like there's this like bragging kind of like I don't know this isn't a problem Paul's like this is a huge problem you guys are followers of Jesus and your community's like look what's happening here and so he's he's trying to like rope this group of of Christians back into the hope that they've been called so the first thing that he does is he speaks of uh, of resurrection right God's first apocalypse God's moment in which he intervened uh, on behalf of them Okay, so um, when we think of Jesus returning, right, when we think of this middle space, this not yet happened space that we exist in, the first thing Paul wants to do is reassure them that it's not going to be as unfamiliar as you think. This has already happened to you before. God in his loving mercy has intervened. 
But the resurrection of Jesus reassures us and tells us always, what the crucifixion of Jesus reassures and tells us always, is that God is good and that he cares for us. Okay, so, so when we feel confused by either the suffering in our life or the suffering around us, when we feel disillusioned or frustrated with the way the world is working, the first thing Paul's going to want to do here is say, listen, remember, Jesus has come. He has conquered death because God loves you. You can rest assured in this. He's not going to provide answers for everything that's going on in their life, but what he will do is reassure them that the cross shows us that we are never truly alone and that God is working all things out for his good purposes. Then he goes on to say, uh, he'll refer to Christ as the first fruits. So we did a whole series in December on what does that mean, Christ being the first fruits. I highly encourage you, you can go back and watch it. Um, that's not a shameless marketing plug. That's me saying I'm not going to be able to unpack all of that this morning. Um, but, but if I could summarize it in the simplest way possible, uh, here's, here's what Paul is saying is, Jesus united to our humanity. He became like us so that we could eventually become like him. Because Jesus has united himself to us, we can be assured that God is working out his goodness in our life because we've now been united with Christ. Nothing can break that or separate that. So while you're in this unknown, uncertain space, which is us waiting, one of the truths that you will cling to and hold to constantly is this, is that because you've been united with Christ, his work in your life cannot be undone. So whatever sin you struggle with, whatever addiction that you have, whatever shame that continues to wash over you, these things will not have the final word in your life. They can't. Jesus will ultimately have the final word in your life. This is judgment, by the way. This is how Paul sees judgment. <coughs> so, uh, moving on. Then he says, But Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through one man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong after him. Okay. So he's reassuring them of something. Hey, look, as you await the, the final return of Jesus, the apocalypse, remember that it's already happened once in your life. Paul uses this word, by the way. He actually uses the word apocalypse in Galatians to describe the moment in which they surrender their life to Jesus and the Spirit of God in love and mercy envelops them and changes them. And he sees this as apocalyptic events of God. Right, so the first thing he does is uh, he assures us the apocalypse is about uh, God intervening on our behalf. The second thing he does is he assures us uh, that that intervention comes when we need it most, and we can be rest assured that it will always be good. We can rest assured in the love that God has for us because we can see the cross as a tangible, actual, real moment in which we can see that God will cross no he, there's no barrier he will not cross there's nothing that he will break down not that he will nothing that he will not break down in order to love us and to rescue us so he says the goal of all of this is for god to be in all for all in all is the word that paul uses here so you'll notice that paul doesn't elaborate on so get ready for it and the way that the left behind series sort of painted this is like 
this thing that we have to prepare for. And if we're not, like if God catches us, right, with our pants around our ankles or whatever way you want to think of that, like, like watch out, woe is you. Rather, for Paul, what he wants them to do is say, hey, when the return of Jesus comes, rest assured that you are loved and that it will work out towards his loving purposes for your life. You've already been apocalyptic. By, you've, you've already gone through God's apocalypse once, and he opened up your eyes and showed you his love through Jesus. Rest assured as you wait again that it's coming. This is the heart and the essence of, of even how Jewish apocalyptic literature is written, whether it's Revelation or Daniel. It drives on two things. One, that God will intervene, that he will, like that's certain. But two, that intervention will be good. These are the two things that those that literature is communicating. Right? So even if you read Revelation and you look at all of the, the wars and the things that are fought, it's not a picture of God necessarily like stirring this pot, like like lightning bolts in hand, like Zeus throwing things down at earth. It's just more or less this picture of humanity that's become enveloped in their own selfish desires and their own needs. Nations are going to war with one another, becoming violent, and Jesus is stepping in at this moment. Is is, is very I'm broad strokes here this morning, um, but that's sort of what we're doing is broad strokes. And so as we close, um, Paul will say in Romans 8, he says this, um, for in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. For in this hope we are saved. Okay, so, so I know like preaching a sermon on end times, usually the goal is like we want to like fire everybody up, and I started, like, giving you signs that we might be close, right? Chinese balloons popping over Wyoming and <laughs> things like that. Um, if you didn't catch that reference, it's all over the news. Um, catch, catch it, be like, who's popping balloons? Um, right, the, 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 like, the goal isn't for me to, like, fire you guys up, be like, I don't know, it could be tomorrow, like, it could be tomorrow, but I don't have any way to, like, give you guys any evidence that that's true. So instead, here's what I want us to take away from end times as, as we gather this certitude of the return of Jesus is one, that it will happen, and two, when it does happen, God is supremely good, and the supremely loving outlook of God will finally be manifested fully in our world. So in the meantime, my real goal pastorally is where I started with so and where I want to end us with this morning is like, what do we do in this middle space? Right, so oftentimes I have, I have pastoral meetings with people and I hear something along the lines, I'm just in a really bad spot spiritually. I'm not praying, I'm not reading the Bible, I don't know what's wrong. Okay, so here's what I want to say to that, is I want to destigmatize some of the tension that you feel in some of these moments, right? Because usually they want to meet with me to figure out, like, what am I doing wrong? What do I got to fix in order to feel close to God again? And sometimes I want you to hear this pastorally, and I've prayed a lot about this this morning before saying this, is sometimes nothing. There are plenty of psalms that are written where the psalmist is like, God, I don't know where you are, you, I can't see you, but there's no explanation that they've done anything wrong. 
or that God's like withholding favor from them in some kind of way. There are psalms where the psalmist is like, I've sinned and it's piled up so high I can't see you anymore. But there are other psalms where the psalmist says, God, why are you so mysterious and so distant? So, so rather this morning, what I want us to do is invite us to live in the, in the not yet space of Christianity. That space where, yeah, you are going to have sinful habits and addictions that you'll spend your whole life trying to overcome or, you know, heal or, or grow from. And yet you're going to look at yourself at the end of your life and go, I should, I'm struggling more than I should. And some of that's because of the space that you live in, not because you're doing something wrong. I don't want to dissolve us of all responsibility. That's not my goal here. But to simply imply that sometimes the angst that we feel, the distance that we feel, and the struggles that we have are not because we're not doing something right or wrong. And they're not because God is not faithfully working. It's because we're still existing in this not yet space. We're waiting for the fullness of God. And so what I want us to do in these moments is repurpose the disappointment. So I'm not saying, let's, let's ignore it. We can't do that. But to repurpose. Okay, so, so my mentor taught me this when I started out on this journey a couple years ago. Um, he says, like, being a pastor, you're going to be exposed constantly to human nature, sometimes in its worst possible forms. And I'm not, that made me sound like I'm, that, that's not a co-op against you guys or anything. Like, it just, like, he was helping me understand, like, hey, like, the journey as you move in is going to be difficult. You're going to have things that are said about you that aren't, like, you're just going to have all kinds of things. But he said, like, so you, you have two options. One, you can get bitter about it. Um, or two, you can repurpose it to realize this is why we need Jesus so badly. And I do this, by the way, not just in pastoral work. It's every time my family does something that's difficult or discouraging. It's every time your spouse will do something that's discouraging or difficult. Like, part of what, what you can do is step back and say, like, there, this is human nature. It's broken and fallen and selfish inherently. My wife has to do this way more than I do, by the way. I, I rarely have to do this uh, towards her. Um, but w what I'm implying here. Uh, is that repurposing the pain to recognize, to like, to the longing of what hasn't happened yet. Jesus, we need you. This is part of like, you guys hear me pray often, uh, God have mercy on us, we need you. Show us how we need you. This is part of this need. I think it's, it's similar for us to do something similar uh, with this other space that we exist in and this not yet space. Yeah, I'm, I'm perceived distance from God. I'm feeling defeated by something. I'm angry with him, whatever it is. What we can do in these spaces is repurpose that into hopeful longing. So that's why Paul says this, this, we are saved by this hope. It, the world's not as it should be. I'm not as I'm should, I, I should be. So my options are, are one, get really bitter towards the world, get bitter towards myself, give up on the world, or give up on myself. Or it's to recognize that God's still working and I'm still waiting and I'm still longing. This is how we exist in this space by keeping a hope alive without becoming disillusioned and bitter and broken and just I give up, I don't care anymore. It's to say that I've got this anger and I've got this frustration and this contentment. God, would you take it? Can I offer it to you? Would you help me with it? And then you use this as, as to repurpose and to say, 
to ourselves. Not, things aren't as right as they should be. Things aren't as right as they are in my own heart. But God, I'm longing and I'm waiting for the day that they are. Would you come, Jesus? I need you. This is how Paul communicated to his churches about what to do as they eagerly awaited. Let me pray for us as I invite worship and communion to come up today uh, and we close. So, Father, we love you um, and we need you. Father, I need you. <coughs> Our church needs you. Father, every single one of us here has unmet longings, unfulfilled hopes. We're feeling defeated by things in our life. We're feeling angry and frustrated with ourselves, or we're feeling angry and frustrated with you. We want your fullness, but we don't seem to get it. We want your answers, but they seem to be withheld. So Father, would you help us as we exist in this not yet space of our, of our reality, to not lose hope, to not to give up on ourselves, to not give up on you, but to repurpose the pain that we have into hopeful longing. Father, we need you. We love you. We pray all of these things in your name.